tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Welcome back. What's with the tone? What tone? I don't I don't have a tone. You have a tone. Is that a tone I hear in your voice? This could go on for a while. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) tone is a thing. But it's funny, as I thought about this, how it's usually meant to describe something bad. Not like, what a wonderful tone she had today. All true statements, and I feel like people should start complimenting on positive tones. Great. But all of this is also interesting when a TV series versus a person has a specific tone. Yes, I did use quotes. I saw them. She did. Appreciate it. That usually means it isn't exactly straightforward where the viewer can trust that they're living in a real world. Absolutely. I sometimes wish I was better at describing tone. When we're talking about shows, which we often are, Mm -hmm. usually the only way I can describe the tone of one show is by comparing it to another show. It's like brain dead. Wait. Nothing is like brain dead. That is true. Though... Fun fact, you're not there yet. But I think season two of The Good Fight is getting very close to it. It's sort of like mixing Brain Dead and Good Wife together, and it's awesome. What are some other shows with specific tones, even if you can't exactly describe what that tone is? Fargo. Yes. I could probably describe that one, but Fargo has a tone. But how would you describe it besides Coen Brothers? <laughs> uh, is it farce? I mean, but as far as the tone, I don't know. We'll get there. Uh, the leftovers has a tone. Does it? Oh my gosh! Everyone I say is gonna. <laughs> no, Fargo. Wait, no, no, that's not fair. Fargo does have a tone. Fargo has a very specific tone. I don't know how to describe that tone, but it does absolutely have something. Yeah. Like I believe. I mean, Melanie Mayron is on this panel, uh-huh. a director of Jane the Virgin, and Jane the Virgin absolutely. Has a tone to it. Okay, so if we're sticking to those, then like if a Fargo and a Jane the Virgin and a Brain Dead, those all those are going to be our examples for right now. That those all have a very specific tone. Yes, and they've all nailed whatever those tones are. Honestly, I would love to sit in on one of the tone meetings where they talk about it. Melanie does say something about twenty pages of tone <laughs> notes she reads before each scene. What are on those pages? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm just like steal her binder. I know. I just, I just want to read the tone pages. <laughs> well, what's also funny is one of my favorite parts of a panel we released a little while ago called "Show Me All Your Flaws" is when Scoot McNary from Halt and Catch Fire talks about wanting to sit in on tone meetings as an actor and feeling kind of left out by not being included. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Christopher Rogers definitely shut that down. Not that it's an option. Hunt Catch Fire is sadly over now, but he was like, nope, nope, that would not have worked out very well. <laughs> but on this panel, Daniel Terciano from Variety, who moderates both this panel's and the Show Me All Your Flaws panels, calls out that that panel is happening later. Yes. In all seriousness, though, I did just look up the definition of tone, just so we have it, so everyone knows. And it is, quote unquote, the general character or attitude of a place, piece of writing, situation, etc. Which means all series have a tone, and it is the voice of the creator and what she, he, they are expressing. I love that these panelists keep coming back to the fact that the characters, at least some of them, are all grounded in reality, whatever their reality is. See, that's where this whole could start, because 
like earlier, you said, but does it have a tone? You kind of had a tone <laughs> with I, the way did I challenge you were you? a little challenging with my example of the leftovers. But based on this definition and the idea that the characters are grounded in their reality, like that would mean that the leftovers has a tone. And that, I mean, they have a very different reality. Yes, they maybe. do. Maybe. Um, but they are all somewhat grounded in the acceptance of the world that they're living in and everything else. But this is where it drives me crazy because I feel like tone is used to say something more specific, like what you were saying originally, like a Jane or a Fargo or whatnot that like is a heightened reality of some kind or not our real world that then you just end up in a circle of like basically trying to define what a chair is. Like, you know? <laughs> Well, and I think the interesting part of this conversation is that yes, every TV show sets a tone. Some are more heightened than others and some are more clearly defined than others. But what's interesting is as a different writer or a different director or even a guest starring actor comes in, mm-hmm. how they pick up on that tone. I remember we had a, a friend, this is kind of tone, kind of not, but a friend that was on a Grey's Anatomy episode <laughs> and he basically said that he tried to be a little more dramatic with it and would make pauses <laughs> between his words. And then when he saw it on screen, he realized that they had like cut out chunks of him because he had taken too long. So then he was also on an episode of Private Practice. And when he was on Private Practice, he like just talked the whole time. <laughs> he was like, don't stop talking because they have a different pace. Yep. And I feel like pacing could be part of tone. Because the real question becomes, what do you do if you have this tone like Brain Dead, the Kings? They know what it is, but then they've got to get what's in their head on the page that they're writing into for five, six, seven other writers to get them on the literally on the same page as them. Like, how do you trust that they're going to understand this tone that you have set forth? Yeah, because you have that version. Then you have Melanie Mayron who comes in as a director. So she's trying to take what's on the page and create the tone oh, yeah. in, you know, the actors and in the setting. Make it physically become a thing. Absolutely. And then also on this panel is Davy Holmes, who created Get Shorty. And for him, he had basically when he started this, the show, he had the tone of the movie. So he was trying to replicate the tone of the movie into a TV show. So he was creating this brand new thing, but had to take something that already existed and figure out how do I transform that into the show that now I have to tell the directors and the actors and the writers. Yeah. Which is crazy because in that sense, we talked about the Coen brothers earlier, but that's Elmore Leonard who definitely has a tone across so many different things that you do have kind of a basis to be like, go watch this movie. This is generally a tone. But then you want to make it your own too. I mean, I'm not sure if he talks about it in this, but he also did in Treatment, which is definitely, it's not a heightened reality kind of tone, but I mean, everything's happening in a psychiatrist's office in a way that like definitely is like a break from a normal sort of structure of a show. So it's very interesting. Uh, And we hope that you enjoy it. Danielle Terciano from Variety is going to be moderating, as we said before, uh, Tone with Robert Michelle King, Davey Holmes, and Melanie Mayron. Okay, well, welcome. Thank you guys for coming. So I would love to actually start with um, basically where we start when we come up with a show, right? Like you have an idea, you have an idea for not only characters and a world, but for the genre and the style. So what, it's a, is it a chicken and an egg? Like what comes first for you guys when you're creating shows? Do you have an idea of the, the tone that you want to live in and play in, or do you, do you start with the characters and the world? For us, it's probably the characters in the world don't you think? 
for certain. And usually, it, 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 like with Brain Dead, which is the weird oddball one, it didn't start in an oddball way. Um, Judy Davis, is that her name? Judy Smith. Judy Smith. Sorry, who's a fixer that scandals yeah, about. Yes. Sat down with Nina Tesler and said, uh, who headed up CBS, we want to do a show about politics. Uh, well, why don't you meet with the king? So we met with her. And it, the problem with all political shows is they felt like they've either been done. They're all trying to reach for West Wing or something. So we kind of went away and said, this probably won't work. And then Michelle and I, at that point, I think the government had shut down because of some uh, brinksmanship. And it just felt insane. Like there was no strategy involved, no political upside to shutting down the government. It all seemed to come from a little bit of anger and peak. So, and just part of rank partisanship. So we then thought, well, this is very much like invasion of the body snatchers. And so <laughs> the, our take was the, we'll do this. And I, so I think that's, it's obvious starts with the world and then you find the way to humanize it with characters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Davey, when you were adapting the, the show, um, how much did you want to keep consistent structurally and tonally? Uh, tone was the first thing for me, before, way before figuring out who was, what the stories were and who the, who the characters were. Um, I, I'd been circling this tone for years. I, tr I had a pilot made that didn't go, and one of the reasons was I, I, you know, I don't think everybody involved quite got what the, what the tone was. It was for network uh, that that was sort of intrigued as they looked over my shoulder, but probably a little worried because uh, the tone of Get Shorty, if you haven't seen Get Shorty, is it's it's uh, you know comedic and and yet there's some serious drama in there and it's violent even while it's funny uh, and. At the time when I made this pilot, there wasn't a whole lot on TV like that. Uh, right around when I was developing Get Shorty, we had uh, Fargo had come out, which is tonally pretty similar. Uh, I mean, it's different, but at least it has both those elements. And I'd been working on Shameless for five or six years, which was uh, more broad in a comedic sense, but definitely was showing me that you can have very serious stuff and very funny stuff. Um, but there was a lot of talk at the network when I made this pilot of, is this in the comedy bin or is this in the drama bin? Uh, and, and people were very concerned about that. And, and by the time I got to get shorty, people, at least Epics, wasn't so worried about that at all. And when I went in to pitch, uh, essentially my pitch was going to be, let's just start over. And I don't want tonally to go the way that Barry Sonnenfeld went with the movie, although I, I really dig the movie, but that's not at all what I wanted to do with it. And the biggest trap felt to me that we might end up being perceived as having made the small screen version of the movie. And they've already made a couple, you know, they, they made Be Cool after they made Get Shorty. And I wasn't interested in that tonally at all. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a tough pitch for MGM. I'm going to tell them I want to just tonally take a different direction and start over and not use the same stories. And I put my water down on a coaster, and it was a Fargo coaster, because I hadn't realized MGM made Fargo, and I was like, oh, this is not going to be so bad. <laughs> uh, so that's where we started. Okay. So when you are met with you know, that first barrier to entry in a way of, I have to pitch this to a studio, to a network, what is the most important thing in terms of you conveying the tone? What do you have to do to kind of sell it to the suits? 
Uh, well, I, I would say in my case that uh, they don't know until they see it. Uh, you know, they actually think they know. There's a there's a there's a version of there's a very obvious version of what Get Shorty could have been. That's um, exactly what I didn't want to do, and and it has to do with a sort of well, I won't I won't insult by picking other works that I was trying to avoid being like, but 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 there's a sort of cliched version of a sort of '90s you know, uh, post Tarantino buddy thug thing with funk music, which, which I, you know, I've got in my DNA somewhere, but I'm bored to hell with that. And, um, everybody who comes on to work on my show starts thinking that's what we're making. And I'm pretty sure that's what the network and studio thought they were making until they saw what it was. And then they rolled with it immediately, but I'm pretty sure they didn't know until then. I would say, in fairness, they may not know, but that in part is because we don't always know when we're starting out. I mean, with Brain Dead, that was going to be politics and horror. Mm. And, you know, we were discovering it a bit as we were developing it. I don't think at the moment when we pitched it, we knew exactly what it was going to be mm -hmm. like. I remember saying, at least to ourselves, it was Roger Corman meets Patty Chiesky. So is there any way to make a stupid show that actually is smart? Because there were so many shows going on on TV that were a little pretentious, especially about politics, that were smart shows that were truly just stupid. So the question was, could you do a show? And clearly you can't do a show that way because we were canceled after 13 episodes. And we shouldn't talk all about Brain Dead because that's, you know, our daughter likes it, but not many other people. And, but uh, with Good Wife and Fight, Again, I think we discovered it as we went along. I mean, with Good Wife, it was how procedural is this going to be? How episodic right. is it going to be? Versus how much are we going to get involved with the characters? We discovered it as we went along. Mm -hmm. So in, in being willing and flexible to have that kind of evolution, Melanie, for someone like you, when you come in and you may watch the first couple episodes that maybe you didn't direct, what do they need to say to you for you to know where it needs to go? Well, I can usually tell where, where they're going with it because you see it. Um, you know, it's hard when you're uh, a director coming into a show. Sometimes the tone isn't, you know, I'll always say to the producers, what are your favorite episodes? Because I want to look at those. Because that will tell me what where you guys, what you guys want and, and where it needs to live. Sometimes, like I had done a pilot of a show years ago and I set a whole look and I set a whole tone and I did the first five episodes and then everybody that came in after me did their own thing. And I was like, wait a minute, don't wait, isn't the deal when you do the pilot and you like do the first, like they're supposed to do what you did because that's what you want the show to be? So sometimes they do the tone and some directors don't get the tone. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is tricky. And it's really hard when, as the hired director, you go in for the tone meeting and the EPs will go, they'll tell you all about the actors and what are the actor's strengths and what you have to look out for because you don't know if you don't know these actors and how they work, so they'll give you a heads up and uh, they'll tell you scene by scene kind of what moments they want to hit or what's important, you know, and what they want and you take your notes and that's your guideline then because usually they're not on the set with you, mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you're getting the moments that they want in there. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up the tone meeting because that is somewhere I want to go, just in terms of how collaborative the process really is. Like, personally, for your shows, how much do you want to collaborate with everybody involved? Network, directors, actors, versus I'm running this, I'm setting this, you're following. With the, with, uh, the studio and the network, they would the first six episodes they are really all over you they're crawling up your ass they've got and then they do some testing at least this is with network and the testing tells them they like the proportions at least for us and then it was like they let it go a little more i think it was the first six to ten episodes where it was like oh my god let us go <laughs> and then they did let you go and i remember being we're being we're very collaborative with directors mm -hmm. and we know that our dp will keep the line on the look and the probably in the tone being we're most obsessed with the comedy because the director will usually sometimes a comedy director but usually they the actors will take care of the dramatic beats the comedic beats have some visual element that we obsess on anything that am i wrong on that I think sometimes we think we're more collaborative than we are. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, that's honest. You yeah. know, I mean, I think up to a point we're very eager to hear everyone's ideas and and we do change the script. Mm -hmm. You know, we get notes and, and we actually are, you know, very pliable. But, you know, when it's set, then we expect the script to be right. delivered to the screen. And are not eager to see changes because someone thought it might be funnier to do it another way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, one of my favorite questions is, you know, the the note you got that you just thought was totally wrong. So have you, have any of you had an experience in a tone meeting where anybody on the team wanted to do something that didn't match up with what you had in mind and how, how did you handle that? You say no. <laughs> well, you can say no. Does, yeah. does everybody has everybody had the experience where you can say no, or is there a lot of do you but find that there's pushback because when you say the tone meeting, you mean the sit down between the EPs and the director of the episode? Yes. You don't. Okay. Yes. Because so, the director really is a journeyman yes. or journeywoman. They're just. But uh, I, but I'm saying I guess you know you can say no, but then I wonder how does that affect the the you use the word journey? I love that word. You know to make the episode. I mean, do you the, have to say it? With some kind of grace to allow them to still feel not really. Okay. There, there, there's, there, <laughs> I'm just I'm just fascinated. No, there, by there's it. there's so many decisions to make. Yeah. There's a billion decisions to make, and I've and you don't you don't want to humiliate anybody, and you don't want to be an asshole. But there's a million decisions. There's if if I weigh in on one thing and I say no, I feel strongly about this, and you're not seeing what I'm seeing, and I'm sorry, but you're not convincing me that what you, you, you've got to take that's exciting you, uh, and I'm telling you that's, that's not the way to go, they still have 10 billion other things that they can figure out. There's no, there's no taking away all the decisions that someone else yeah. will get to make. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know, I can't speak for other people, but you know, we have so much story to track, and it's so specific, the visual vocabulary and the and, and where the story is, you know, it's we think this guy is funny and he doesn't have any lines there. But that moment is all about him being uncomfortable. And it's actually I'm realizing it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you've been working on something else and you come into our show and you have 
you know, you watch some episodes and then you got a little time to prep. You're not going to catch all that. You're not going to know. You got to go close on him. If you don't cover that actor in that moment, you've just ruined the scene. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's going to be flat and we won't know what it's about because it's actually about that guy in that moment. And I'm learning, I've learned the hard way that, you know, you, and, and, and I, we talk about, you know, talk about tone meetings. I, I'm increasingly think, I don't know what the hell, I think directors, it's too much information. I think there has to be communication going past the tone meeting because the tone meeting, you talk for two hours, three hours about an episode of 50 some minutes of TV. And, and I, I don't know, I think directors are just, you can't absorb it all. You can't, you can't go through a scene and say, let me give you, let me give you 15 hours of lead up to this moment. Mm. Um, so it's a massive expression of idea of, of flow of ideas. You can't get hung up on anyone telling you. And I, I get it back from, you know, we get it back from everyone, from network, from actors, from everyone. And I'm one over all the time, but there's no dancing around what you know, you see, mm -hmm. you know, what you've created that moment to be is, it requires a whole set of stuff that has to go just, just so, you know. Okay. Melanie, for you, um, when you, I mean, let's, I, I'd love to specifically look at Jane the Virgin first because th there's so much in that world that is grounded in reality in terms of relationships and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but this last season there was a, a cancer storyline and, um, and yet then there's the fantastical realism. So what are, what are the conversations that you're having to make sure you hit all of those points and not drag, for example, one of the cancer stories too far into the surreal tone of the show? Jenny Snyder Ehrman, who's the showrunner, is, you know, very, very specific. She does a pass on all the scripts and she really has, really has the show in her head how she wants it. And um, one of the writers said to me about that show, it's very different because I've done a lot of procedural, I've done a lot of action, I've done comedy and drama. And what Jane the Virgin is, they said it's a genre smash. It's like a comedy, it's a drama, it's a procedural, it's a telenovela. It's a lot at once that you're juggling. So it's interesting talking about the tone. But um, it's got to be grounded in reality. And if there was any other actress in that show other than Gina Rodriguez playing Jane, the show would not be what it is. Because Gina is, I had actually hired her on an Army Wives about seven years ago, um, gave her her first job in TV and film, and um, knew her from that. And she's a terrific dramatic actress, but she'd gone to NYU Tisch, and she's brilliant comedian as well. And she actually just directed last season, and she's you know, going to be a wonderful director too. But the tone, Jenny, is all over it. And like you just said, Davey, about if I need that person covered because I need that, you know, that's the stuff that you'll say in tone. So you know, because you might read it and go, oh, I, you know, I didn't get that at all. You know, it's funny, years ago, I um, auditioned for a play on Broadway, Neil Simon, Mercedes Rule was leaving, and I went up for the audition, and it was downtown at the, Mark Taper, and I had read the play, and it was for Aunt Bella in like Brighton Beach Memoirs, and I read it, and I went and did the audition. It was like, you know, New York, Jewish, whatever, and I thought I nailed it. And then my friend Brooke Adams, Brooke was out in LA, she flew to New York to see Mercedes in the play and saw that Bella was slow. 
this was not written in the script at all, but there was something off with Bella. And I just read it and sort of went in and did the part. But Brooke went in and my friend coached her and she said, you know, there's something off with her. But the lines didn't say anything. And my friend, Catelyn Adams, who's an actress and a wonderful coach, she said to Brooke, go buy some underpants that are like a couple sizes too big. You know, like the Hanes, like a Target. And she said, and all during, all during your audition, just be, you know, saying the lines, but be kind of, you know, working on your underpants. So, so the whole audition, you know, she was standing there and she was doing her lines. And anyway, she got the part. And I, I, I saw Neil Simon at a, because I'd done a play reading for him before, and I saw him at a party in Santa Monica, and I was going into the room, and I went, oh, shit, and I turned around and walked the other way, because I didn't want to run into him, and then I was going around, and he came around, and bang, I went right into him. And he goes, he goes Melanie, hi, and I go, oh, hi, Neil, how you doing? He goes, yeah, you know, you, you know, I'm sorry you didn't get the part. I said, oh, that's okay. He says, you know, Brooke Adams got the part. I go, yeah, I know. He says, you know, she did the most incredible choice for her audition. <laughs> And I said, what did she do? He said, she wore underpants that were too big. And all through her audition, she was just picking at them the whole time. <laughs> but it, it, there was a tone. I mean, it came off yeah. that she was slow or there was yeah. something off with her. And if somebody doesn't say, because you can read the script and not know. You know, and someone says, no, yeah. this character, it's all about him in that scene. Right. So you know you're going to be cutting back. You better get the shots because otherwise if you're just sort of not covering that person, it's not going to be what they intended it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a, a great segue into the good fight because um, you had some things this season that were, with specifically with Diane, were a little bit more surreal, even though obviously the world, it is our world. Trump is president. She's going through it. We all are, um, whatever your political belief may be. But you had these moments where like, she didn't really know what was real, and so neither did the audience. And can you talk a little bit about you know, how much of that is, do you feel like you have to put it on the page exactly versus what Melanie is talking about allowing it to come with performance? It's on the page. Okay. It, I mean, it's, it's very clear on the page. And I mean, it helps, of course. Christine Baranski is brilliant, and we've been working with her for years. But no, it's very specifically clear in the script, mm-hmm. and, and then, of course, discussed with the director, whoever he or she might be. Mm-hmm. We start the year sitting down with all the five to six main actors and tell them their arc for the year okay. and say that this is flexible, this may change. In fact, I think Delroy's changed mid-year, so we sat him down again just to say. And then what you also then is update them on where they are in their arc, because some there was a moment in Christine's story where she sobers up, basically. Yeah. The whole story this year is she starts microdosing um, uh, liquid mushrooms, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so when she's watching the news, it's just like, is that really what Trump said? Or is she kind of, is it a faulty narrator the audience is seeing through her? And then we wanted it at one point, she sobers up because of an event that happens in the narrative. And we kept sliding that event later. So Christine could sort of adjust her performance as much as possible. Okay. So then when you are looking at balancing these worlds of living in today's world, very topical, sometimes very dark. Your show is very violent. You guys got violent this year with the Kill All Lawyers as well. Just from a taste perspective, where's the line you want to draw so that you still bring in some humor, so that you don't go too dark for the audience that you have? Is there a too dark for you? Let's put it that way. There, there is. It's, it's, it's interesting. 
uh, on Shameless, there was a running gag in the room, which was, oh, that's too far? Oh, that's going too far? Because Shameless was just, basically, it was you pitched the most awful thing that couldn't possibly be on the show. And then someone would say, well... <laughs> and then that's absolutely going to be on the show, because that's what that show is. Mm. But, um, no, there, there are some... Uh, I mean, again... You know, it's a, it's a strange time. It's a, I, I think about it too. You know, the the violence that we have in the world, and and uh, are we, you know, continuing or perpetuating that, or are we actually critiquing that? And and you know, we certainly are dramatizing uh, human pathos and violence, you know, on Shakespearean levels and all of that. And and uh, I have a very strange show where people get shot and you laugh, which um, I don't take lightly. And I actually don't think we're trivializing violence, which is, I've, I've thought about it. Um, I just saw on the plane out here, The Death of Stalin. Has anyone seen that? I mean, Iannucci is like, it's just right. That's, that lives this tone that we're, we're walking where in that movie, you know, people are being murdered from the moment that the movie starts all the way through and it's horrifying and yet it's presented as farce really and you laugh and it's amazing and yet you're you're laughing at the tragedy and the absurdity of human beings and it's it's kind of what we're trying to do on get shorty at least at least that's our highest aspiration when we have that kind of stuff but occasionally we come across something that's so dark that um, it would take you out of that that mm -hmm. tone, and and it's funny when we hit that because it doesn't happen much. There's a lot of horrible stuff that happens on my show, but every now and then we're like, oh, that's uh, that's not. There's no there's no sat there's no uh, irony in that. That's just horrible, you know. <laughs> Do you want to say what something would have been like that that you would rejected? Uh, well. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, it, there's, it's interesting who can die and who can't die. You could, you, can kill, you could kill somebody's family member and feel horrible in a way that, that, that you just know that would be a violation of some code of the show. But then there are essentially people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time, and somehow you sense that there's some bigger statement of, Jesus, we're all at the mercy of... of of being in the right or wrong place at the right or wrong time. And that seems to mean more than just senseless tragedy. Mm -hmm. For you guys, do you feel like um, you've, you've evolved the tone a little bit this season, given maybe wanting to give people a little bit more of an escape at all? Uh, no, you... No, I, w I would say, if anything, the tone's gotten a little edgier this second season. We don't, I mean, because we have very few guns on our show. Uh, we had one, two. Two, which for television is, is unusual, yeah. and nothing on the first season. So to reject things because of violence, that's not an issue for us, and we don't shy away from darkness either. The, the only thing that worries us is earnestness. Mm -hmm. So... Occasionally, we will say, well, that's not our show, but that's because someone is speechifying, typically. 
Okay. And, and that gets rejected. And I think the only thing is, it, I would love to say that we want to be good people who don't want people to be influenced by violence. But I think it's just a reaction to TV tropes. Well, the, the show we were with Good Wife anyway was a reaction to L.A. Law and Law and Order. And a tendency the show had to hype violence for excite for some excitement or even er that there might be the, the the catastrophe of the week and we thought life isn't lived as oh there's a helicopter landing on the helicopter on the hospital or something it is lived where you have a case where someone was murdered two years ago and now you have to deal with the photos so that i think was that tendency. So what was not our show was to have a lot of people who came in to pitch episodes for freelance would pitch in. So a guy comes in with a gun and is holding one of the lawyers hostage. And it was like, yeah, but if you do that, you're kind of breaking this con this kind of agreement with the audience that you're going to show them life as they live it day to day. And not that many life, you know, not that many people go through a hostage crisis mm -hmm. every week and a new one. And then it's forgotten. And then so anyway, <laughs> well, I mean, all the shows, you know, that you guys are representing really do balance the comedy and the drama aspect of the tone very well. I think that, you know, the a lot of times we kind of laugh harder after we've seen something that was just very hard to go through, hard to watch. Um, where do you guys start when you're, do you, do you start by saying, I specifically know in this scene for example, if somebody is going to go through something very tough like a kill a lawyer situation on your show or, you know, murdering someone on your show, like I know I I know where the beats are that I need to put in the humor. Are you saying that do we know up ahead where the comedy rests in, yeah. in a thread? I mean, how, structurally, how do you guys work out where the comedy is going to come in? We oh, sorry you. No, no, I, okay, we did an episode, uh, the last one this year, which was a satire of all the president's men. It was like, um, there's a great uh, Liz Fair album, which is uh, Exile in Guysville, which is a song-to-song -song answer to the Rolling Stone album. Um, Exile on Main Street. So what we wanted to do was we're living in this absurd time where there's Woodward and Bernstein. It's about chasing golden shower tapes. So what we wanted to do, and so what what clearly is the comedy was very evident of what, how we would satirize, you know, Deep Throat would be a version of Stormy Daniels. Like you would, the yeah. comedy laid itself out okay. and it was part of the premise. Okay. I'm going to give a spoiler. Am I allowed to give a spoiler? Well, if your season's been out. Yeah, so. okay. I'm going to give a spoiler, but maybe if you haven't seen it, it'll make you want to watch the show. Um, and and this is this is an easy this is uh, this is a situation where the tone tone's easy because you're you're coming up. Uh, how do I explain this? There's so many challenges to tone on at least on Get Shorty that are constant battles. And something I wanted to ask about is you know other people's experiences of you know how do you correct it when the when something has been executed in a way that's tonally wrong and you know you get in the editing room or you. You turn to music, or you—it's—it's it's a, it's a constant wrestling match, um, and and sometimes we, sometimes I get the tone wrong and 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 have to have to compensate. But um, the, here's a here's an example of how we came up with one uh, story, which was that uh, there was a there was a a loose thread. There was a, essentially a witness who very slowly over a bunch of episodes has been piecing together 
that her boyfriend's m- missing and, and, and what, what might have happened to him. And it's making our leads, who murdered this guy, nervous. And, um, and so uh, one, of our, one of our guys tells the other guy, you know what, we figured out who she is. Go and, go and pay her a visit and, and, and make this problem go away. And the other guy's like, yeah, great, sure. Which to him means I'm gonna go kill her. And he's like, you know what? Don't, don't kill her, don't kill her. You can just go talk to her, calm her down, give her, feed her some story. And, and our, our Lewis, who's, this, who's the guy who's gonna send over there, is like, you're making it so complicated. So okay, some of the humor is how awful this is and that these guys are, he's like, ah, what, do you, what, do you, what am I supposed to say? Oh, jeez, all right. So he goes over to this girl and uh, she's, she's a slightly wretched character, but she does not deserve to die. There's no one who would. And he, uh, this guy knocks on the door and he spends forever talking her down. And when we broke it, we were like, that was the story was he went over there and he talked her, he gave her Fetter the most ridiculous story ever, but he worked so hard at it that he won her over and he left. And we broke it that way. And that was a story. He, he didn't kill her for once and he was walking out and then we said in the room, so you know what would be really funny is after we've gone through all that story, is if she came out after him and said, wait, one thing you said to, and he shot her in the head. <laughs> so that's what we did. And it's, it's, and, uh, it's horrible, but it's, la- and it's the weirdest thing, which is when you watch that episode, I've been in roomfuls of people who laugh when this person gets shot. But the, again, what you're laughing at is, <laughs> is the tragedy and the absurdity of it. It's like they worked so hard and everything was fine. Uh, anyway. Yeah, but it gives you kind of a moment to breathe in an odd, uncomfortable way, I think, right? Like we've had this, it was tense the whole time not knowing. If and it's, su- it's surprise. I mean, they hugged at the end of it. It was all, it was, she bought the story. Everything was fine. He walked out. He shuts the door. He goes, Ah, and you see on his face, he's like, I did something good for once. And then (laughs) she comes out and that's it. Not on this show. Um, We talked a little bit about the actors and, you know, their their influence, but I'd love to dig a little deeper um, in terms of if there's if there's been a character that you had in your mind a certain way, maybe more or less humorous that changed based on the person you had in the role. Uh, yes. Uh, when we started The Good Wife, Christine Baranski's character was meant to be an antagonist for the Juliana Margulies character. She was supposed to be this difficult boss who was keeping her down. And then you spend any time with Christine Baranski and see what she does on the screen, and you hear that magnificent laugh, and you realize, okay, this cannot be an antagonist. Mm -hmm. This, you know, she must be deeper than that. You must have a bond between these two. Mm -hmm. And and that's actually a problem we have every time, that we start with antagonists, and then we fall in love, and then suddenly they're not antagonists anymore. So what what works? What, how do you work through that in terms of being willing to go with the change, but also then finding the new antagonist? Well, how we find that is we watch all the dailies. When the dailies come in, because our we're showing so close to when we're shooting, you have to keep track of the dailies to see what the actors are doing. And the actors may find a funny little turn that you decide to start writing towards. And then when you, the lovely thing about having such a rich pool of actors in New York 
is you find another antagonist. We want, you know, in the rise room, we said, well, let's go with a schlubby kind of guy who is a fixer for um, drug dealers. And it should be a Wallace Shawn type. And then we got Wallace Shawn. So suddenly... So then he's not as... Yeah. yeah. So what really what the show is about is soft power being dangerous. And so what you usually leaned into was actors and actresses that aren't usually made villains. Mm. Uh, Michael J. Box is not made a villain often. So we went for him and, you know, uh, Mamie Goomer. Some people like that are seen as sweet and kind of innocent. And that... It played into the theme of the show. And Melanie, when you're working with actors on Jane or on, she's done a number of great shows like Glow, Grace and Frankie, Reverie, what, when you have someone in front of you who is maybe doing something differently than it was on the page that, that has been conveyed to you in the, in the meetings that we've talked earlier, do you let them run with it a little bit? Do you give them wiggle no. room? Okay. No, I do what I'm told. <laughs> I'm a very good girl. <laughs> No, um, I remember the first Jane that I did, there was, and it was interesting, because, and it, this wasn't a tone note, it was just, I mean, I'm an actor too, so it was just an obvious, sh this was something that should have upset her, and we were at the dining room table in the Villanueva house, and Gina just did a comedy beat with it, she did not let it sink in, and it was a, it was a moment, it was, you, you know, it, it was a dramatic moment that she had to take on, and um, she just sort of, did a, did a thing and went past her and I, it was one of the first scenes I had with her and I was like, wow, okay, you know, like she needs direction. I mean, she's so brilliant in the show, but when you're there, it's like you don't know what, you know, and I'll always let the actor, even though I have like 18, 20 pages of tone notes, which I look at the tone notes before every single scene to make sure I get all those moments, um, I always let the actor do what, you know, you want... They were hired for a reason, they're great, you want them to do it, you know, and then if stuff has to be tweaked, then you tweak it. And I went up to her, I said, Gina, you know, she's saying this about your boyfriend, you can't just blow it off, you've got to let that hit. Your grandmother, you know, and she was like, oh, I mean, she'll know immediately, and the very next take, it was an entirely mm -hmm. different thing, you know, but it's like, you, I mean, Christine, I did playing for time with her, Back in the, when I was 23 and she was 23, we sat next to each other for six weeks in the orchestra. Um, Christine's brilliant, but it's true. No matter how good you may be as an actor, if yeah. you weren't there for the tone notes, you may do it right. and get it, and you may not, you know? And so that's where the director is to come in. And for you as an actress, because you are on Jane the Virgin as well, do you, are, do you, are, this, are you the same way? Do you feel like, because I have this, I'm used to these meetings, I'm used to having to keep the tone? Like, are you as cognizant when you're in the actor you know, seat I, position? I, I'm playing, I have a recurring as Professor Donaldson, who's her bitchy. <laughs> and it's like what you said, because I'm always like, I'll, I'll go to the nice, you know, not the other. But mm -hmm. so it's sometimes it's hard for me, you know, and even I've done shows where I'm directing myself. So it's like, no, I got to be the, I got to be the bad person here. You know, <laughs> I got to be the edgy chick, you know. <laughs> We have to take a quick break. Uh, you mean we get to take a break and be offered something awesome? Yes, that is what I meant. I thought so. More of the TV campfire and great TV conversations right after this sweet offer. It's hard to find a perfect pair of jeans, right? You don't want to break the bank, but you do need something that lasts. Great jeans don't have to be complicated, nor do they have to be expensive. Mm, that seems like a new theory. <laughs> well, with distilled... 
it's free shipping both ways. So like, really, what do you have to lose? So if I order a pair and they're not right, like for, they're too big, they're too small, they're too short, they're too long, they just, you know, don't make my legs look as good as I want them to, I can just put them back in the mail for free. Yeah. And you can get a refund or exchange them. There's like no risk to this scenario. The truth is, you will find the perfect pair. What's better than saving time and saving money? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Well, great TV is also maybe better than that. But here's the thing I was thinking about. When you're watching TV, like, you want to be in, like, really comfortable pants, right? Uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than watching TV or a movie, if you're a movie kind of person, mm. and being uncomfortable and having your pants too tight. So I got the, like, black power stretch ones. And what's really cool about them is I can wear them to work or on a plane or into a meeting or on my couch watching a bunch of TV. A pair of pants that can transition from all of those places is kind of a miracle. It's like... What's another version of Sisterhood, the traveling pants? It's like, but for yourself, like, right. you're the different phases of your life. Yeah. <laughs> These black pants that I got, like, I was, I, look, I'm going to be honest. I was doubtful. Like, I thought I'm ordering these online. They look a little too skinny for me. Like, they just, they don't look like they're going to work. And they are the right amount of stretch. They're super comfortable. I wear them maybe more than I'd like to admit. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. We have very different body shapes. So to have jeans that fit both of us. Yeah. It's kind of magical. So here's the deal, guys. Go to Distilled, which is dstld.com right now, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TVCampfire at checkout. What are you waiting for? Seriously, go. Okay. Well, I would love to throw it open to the audience if anybody has any questions. Hello. Hi. Um, as an actor... A big challenge for us when we get an audition before a show is on the air is knowing the tone. Um, what what sort of advice can you offer <laughs> coming into the room, putting a tape together, knowing nothing about the tone? That's such an what interesting question. I have a funny story, which is an actor who I won't mention, but well, I had a I had another show that was uh, dark comedy. I mean, it was six, it was an hour long, but it was a dark comedy, and he came in and threw a and did a serious. Uh, did, did, did had a monologue that was comedic and he was absolutely dead serious and he had tears rolling down his face and I thought geez I'd love to work with this guy boy is he wrong for this show and and, and he's gone on to win Emmys he's an Emmy award when he, he was nobody then he's gone on to uh, fame and fortune and uh, boy was he in the wrong audition but but it was like I was like this is like Robert De Niro auditioning for my funny show and not getting the memo um but that you know, it, it's an, it's it's amazing to me how well actors do suss on to tone. Um, maybe it's maybe it's just reading. I mean, it's really tough if you just get sides. I think, but if you can get the script and you see what else those people have worked on and ask. I mean, casting directors should tell you and should help you really, because um, I'm I'm amazed that there isn't more trouble with that. You know, even actors coming onto the show. I'm, I'm always amazed how everybody kind of gets it, uh, largely. Uh, I guess the casting director? I'm, is that, is that an answer? When a casting director will tell somebody, you know, if, if they're off. But if you're doing a self-tape at home, you're not going to have a clue. The casting director will pretty much know the tone, know what everybody's looking for. And, hey, could you do it again and try it this way? You know, because they want to give that actor the best shot they've got. Self-tape's tricky, right? Yeah, yeah, really totally. Yeah. Uh, we don't even do it. No. Well, they're, they're filming it, so you probably should. Oh. 
self tape is really tricky, and 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 you're not wrong in that it's a challenge because um, you you win or lose the role based on this little choices. You know, you have if you have a a series of good actors to choose from, somebody who's making choices that are tonally dead right is going to get the part. So that's a it's a tough thing. I will say self tapes. We cast self tapes all the time, so people get it right, but it's a, it's a challenge. In the red. Hello. Um, so in the earlier session today on, on uh, uh, what was that flawed character? It kind of dissolved in a little bit of the, the director was the flaw. Uh, and and the, the, the passing of the baton in, during a series. And there was a, a quite, it got pretty lively there for yeah, a while. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering now that seasons typically are shorter, uh, is, is there a, is there a, uh, some sort of collaboration amongst directors, or is there just the same pool they go to? And sure, and and uh, it kind of got worked out. Don't worry, but it was still it was interesting about con con keeping the consistency because everything else was consistent out of the season except the director, and some people were not um, real supportive of that yeah. theory. It's um, a huge challenge for us. It's a massive challenge. I mean, it is. I don't know what is the challenge. How, is the fact yes, that you have right. a rotating stable of directors, right. and if the tone is tricky. It's, a, it's an incredibly huge challenge. Well, I mean, one way to protect yourself is sometimes you have producers who direct. I mean, for example, uh, one of our executive producers, Brooke Kennedy is a director, Robert is a director. So you have people that know the show intimately. If you use them frequently, that protects you. Also, you, if you're doing the show for a while, you have your favorites and you bring them back. I mean, again, it's all about protecting the show that's another way to do it. And part of it is arranging the schedule um, so that the weaker, or the newer directors, the, the question marks, are supported on both sides by directors who you know are strong. Also, we just keep a hawk's eye on the dailies. It's very clear very quickly when a director is losing his or her way. And then, What do you do? What do you do? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's I a mean, very delicate conversation because there's a downward spiral. This morning. Uh, <laughs> Saying they implode, they implode if you panel. jump on them. I, I mean, the difficulty I find is when an EP is a whisper from us is a shout. So the difficulty is when you go in and whisper a lot. There's you can tell they're shaking and worrying about the next day, and you can see that they've lost the confidence. And it's a very difficult. And Juliana Margulies was very good on Good Wife in trying to be a leader on set as Christine Baranski is on uh, Good Fight. And they often are supportive of a director to get them back in the game. Mm -hmm. okay. They're nicer than me, I'm pretty sure. But. <laughs> um, this question's for Robert and Michelle. Um, so The Good Wife was about uh, a politician's wife who was shamed and then had to go back to work and find herself. And so that kind of set the tone very much like um, you know, despair and figuring things out. But then somewhere along the way, um, you started introducing these very bizarre characters, like the judge who required to, you know, you say, um, in my opinion, or um, the uh, investigator who was Mr. Mom, and then that, my favorite episode where he put uh, uh, Rothschild on, on the speakerphone with the talking line puppet. And so I'm kind of curious, uh, how did that tone evolve where it almost feels like the, the, that seems like your signature now, like in these quirky characters? 
It's funny that you mentioned those. Every one of those particular incidents came from something in our family. So, I mean, we, we might be lucky. I mean, one of Robert's sisters uh, insists on that kind of speech, and the talking phone came from one of my uncles gave me as a gift as a kid. So, I mean, if you're lucky enough, your family's a little weird, and you, you can mind that. Yeah, um, it's comedy. I mean, actors... It's, you want to give actors something fun to do. And often, like Nathan Lane was on the show for a while, we had Nathan Lane, who's always played some version, it feels like, of the character you played on The Birdcage. And so what we wanted to do was go in the opposite direction, a humorless, you know, an accountant type. And so I think part of it is playing against the type. Um, that's all. I mean, you, when you think of an investor, you don't think someone who's dragging around his three kids and pushing them around in a... And yet he would then use that, again, going to soft power being powerful, he would use his kids to get pieces of information. So it always just felt like it played off the comedy of soft power. Um, I'm curious from, you, from your perspective, coming from broadcast, going to streaming, being on cable, where does that fall in? Do you feel like there, is there more freedom now Overall, because the landscape has changed and because everybody's just trying to make noise, or do you feel like there's still a distinction what you can do in each place? You, you, you guys know that better. Well, the, 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 good th the, the good and the bad thing about network is I don't know if they've changed that much in what they're aiming for. Um, there are little pockets of interesting and, fa you know, everybody's after this is us now. So basically... <laughs> You've got to pitch yourself. This is like this is us, but it's about serial killers, or you know, what? That would be a fascinating tone, and if you if you write that, I will watch it. But you're always trying to hit hitch your wagon to something that they're after at the moment, and the difficulty is, uh, it can be a little prosaic in its thinking. So as much as streaming has opened the door a yeah. bit, you're finding that they're looking for repeatable phenomenon, a status quo that can be maintained. And, you know, we got a little of that the first season, which, the second season, too, which is don't be so serialized, you know, give self-contained episodes. And the show, the problem is the, the show didn't want to be that. It was wanting to be something else. And beyond that, we had a star, Juliana Margulies, who didn't want it to be that. It's not the good lawyer, it's the good wife. So she always was pushing for it, too, which helps. When you have a star behind you, it helps. Mm -hmm. uh, but that said... Uh, even when we were on network, the things that we were told we couldn't do, it never involved tone. It almost never involved subject matter. I mean, we had tremendous latitude there as much as we have on streaming. You know, it, it got into other things. You, you couldn't obviously swear in the same way, but there was a lot of latitude, really. Mm -hmm. I've, I've found cable to be incredibly freeing. Uh, um, just fantastic, wonderful, really, largely. You're getting pushed to make things more exciting, more outside the box. Um, and it, no matter, you can't get away from the fact that it's collaborative and you have to communicate your vision. And if you're taking risks, uh, I mean, I was just in the editing room doing something that even my editor was looking at me cross-eyed the whole time. And I don't even know if it, it's gone to the network. I don't know if they're going to get it or what. But, but you're, you're not going to escape that, that, that if you're really trying to do something different, 
it's tough and, and you will get p smart people questioning you and hopefully you've earned their trust to where, I mean, my, my favorite moments of season two on my show were all battles, but they weren't battles with a restrictive corporate entity that was, they were actually battles with smart people that want to do different stuff and want to be, uh, to challenge the form and, to, and, and, and to tell stories in different ways, but they were worried that what I was doing wasn't going to work. Um, who is it? I just read uh, David Chase uh, quoting some producer that he he started working for that the guy said, uh, TV is like making pancakes, except you have to eat the burned ones. <laughs> and and he said that uh, within The Sopranos, as he got to a certain point, he, he stopped worrying about whether he, he stopped worrying about eating the burned ones. Mm -hmm. And and there's a little bit of that. Uh, I find in, in, in our, but the, again, the parts that I'm most proud of are the ones that were everybody, including me, was like, is this going to work? You know? So on a purely personal level, I mean, what are the shows, the tones of shows that you're attracted to? What the shows that you watch, how similar are they to the shows you make? Um, my favorite show of the last year was uh, Twin Peaks, which is as different as you probably get from ours in the Current shows probably the terror, mm. which is just bizarrely um, dark. Mm -hmm. uh, Michelle, I I oftentimes watch comedies, and so we're doing nothing like Bob's Burgers, but I still like it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so. I mean, what is it? What is it about the difference that you feel like is attracting you? Like, is it is it to escape into a different world from your own? Yeah, I mean, you, you, if you're looking at another hour long drama, you're you really are watching it knowing what the director is saying every moment, knowing that, oh, they must have lost a location. That's why they're back in the office. <laughs> All right, so it's not really about the tone. It's more yeah. about that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, uh, why we probably watch something very different is um, we're, a lot of TV seems to be edging towards pretension. Mm. And I think one of the things I'm attracted to shows that are unpretentious. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about you guys? I've been watching Black Mirror. Oh my God, Black Mirror is incredible. I think with the story and the technology and the filmmaking, and I I had missed all the years of Americans, so I just sort of went through all sixty of those. Mm -hmm. That was that was a ride, boy. <laughs> that was, there's a lot of great stuff on. It's really mm -hmm. really something. I, I'm so I'm behind in my TV watching because I, you know, uh, I go underwater when I'm making the season. I, I I really don't have time for. I have two little kids and that's it, man. I have kids in the show, um, but uh, I mean I I I tune into the sort of the obvious stuff. You know, everyone's excited. I hear enough people talking about Atlanta. I'll go and watch Atlanta and then get excited about that along with everybody else. And I, I was very influenced by The Sopranos and by Breaking Bad and by, you know, Fargo. And those are, I, I, can, I can go back and watch The Sopranos repeatedly. Have you at any point in your careers found that you've had to make a conscious effort if there's something that you're attracted to to not emulate it? If you if you have your own voice, and if you have the freedom to have your own voice, um, I I found that I worried more about that than I actually needed to, okay. and that um, for instance, 
uh, Birdman. I went to see Birdman and I loved the music and I had been thinking about using drums for a show and for a comedic show and I thought, boy, look how beautifully that works. Uh, it, and and I'm, I was a musician uh, earlier in my life, so I'm very sensitive to music that tells you how to feel. It really bugs me. You know, it doesn't bug me in other people's work. It bugs me in my work. So I actually accept it with other people. But, but I, hate, I hate a scene that's already there, and then you have, if it's already sad, and then there's a sad music under it, it's just, just like, why do you need to have sad music? And, um, and so then we thought, uh, well, let's get, what if we called, let's get a drummer like the Birdman drummer. And then I was like, well, let's call the Birdman drummer. So we called him and he was like, yeah, I'd love to do the show. And then I sat down with uh, Alan Coulter who did our pilot. Mm. And he said, oh, I want to do all these single traveling shots and da, da, da. And the more he talked about it, I was like, that sounds a lot like Birdman. And then he was like, yeah, because I saw Birdman. I said, oh, you can't do that because <laughs> we, we, we just got the Birdman drummer. It's going to be the Birdman show. <laughs> and... Uh, you know what? No one thinks it's the Birdman show. It's true. Uh, I was super worried will. about it. Network was worried about it. You know, the only reason I would even admit this in front of a group of people is the show's evolved. And even if you saw the pilot, I don't think it's its, its own thing. Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, shows. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. It was so great to have you. Thank you for the great questions. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Festival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com. <laughs>